I'm Janice Kamina Resnick, and on behalf of Jews United for Democracy and Justice and Community Advocates, Inc., I warmly welcome you to tonight's America at a Crossroads virtual town hall program. Our judge leadership team includes former Congressman Mel Levine, David Lehrer, former LA County Supervisor Zev Yaroslavsky, Caroline Kelly, and Rabbi Ken Chazen. And you saw our list of co-sponsors on the screen a moment ago. Thank you to all of them. As we mark the one year anniversary since the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol, we are especially grateful to our esteemed panelists and our moderator tonight, Joanna Mendelson, Imran Ahmed, Carol Lenning, and Larry Mantle for helping us to better understand where we are at a one year later. Next week, we are excited to welcome back Roberta Kaplan, lead counsel in the Charlottesville case in which she prevailed against the Nazi defendants. Roberta will appear with her co-counsel, Karen Dunn, and Integrity First for America's executive director, Amy Spitalnik, in conversation with UC Irvine's law professor, Henry Weinstein. The topic is using the courts to combat supremacy and extremism. And on January 19th, we'll have a chance to learn about the current state of, of affairs between the US, Russia, and the Ukraine from three extraordinary guests, political activist and former world chess champion, Gary Kasparov, former US ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall, and the Washington Post's Max Boot. Join us for a real world game of chess and chicken, Russia, the United States, and the Ukraine. Full unedited recordings of all of our 90 programs can be found on our YouTube channel and on our website. And an easy to use link is provided in every mail, every email that either David or I send. So just look for it in the email. So many of you have listened to our program and have asked what you can do to protect our democracy. Starting today our web, uh, on our website, you will find links to 30 organizations mostly focused on voter registration, voting rights, and voter suppression. They are all nonpartisan organizations. Thank you to those who responded to our request for suggestions of organizations to include on our list. There are some amazing works being done, and I was completely blown away by some of these organizations. We hope that you will peruse our activism page. Uh, I will send you a link right after the program tonight, and we hope that you'll feel moved to engage. This is a work in progress, so please continue to make your recommendations to us. And we also want to hear your experiences, if you had a particularly good or bad experience, just write me an email so we can um, know what's going on with the organizations that we vetted and are referring you to. Each week we will focus on one organization and this week it's Vote Riders. Vote Riders is one of the country's leading nonprofit, nonpartisan organizations focused on the issue of voter ID laws. Vote Riders mission is to ensure that no eligible voter is prevented from casting a ballot that counts due to voter ID laws, either directly from lack of acceptable ID or indirectly because of voter confusion. It was founded 10 years ago and it's helped millions of voters successfully navigate and overcome the barriers that result from voter ID laws, which are in effect in 36 states. In fact, on January 20th at 4 p.m. Uh, Pacific time, Vote Riders is hosting its annual volunteer briefing. So if you want to sign up for that and get involved with helping to register, register. voters and helping to ensure that voter ID laws are not an impediment, helping people get IDs, uh, you'll have a link in the email. There has been a link in the last two emails we sent and there'll be one more tonight. And I do wanna thank Rabbi Myrna Matza for her volunteer work and helping us vet these many organizations. We're very appreciative. Now, please welcome my amazing partner, David Lehrer, for a couple of more programs and to introduce our, our moderator tonight. David? Thank you, Janice. Happy New Year to you all. I trust that despite COVID and Omicron, you've had a restful and hopefully reinvigorating holiday season. Having spoken with three guests earlier, I know that we are in for a real treat tonight. Lots of fresh information, thoughtful analysis, and even some reasons for hope. I wanna let you know about a program we have for January 26, two weeks from tonight will be re actually three weeks from tonight. We'll be hosting Anne Applebaum, a Pulitzer Prize winning historian and journalist who is presently a staff writer for The Atlantic. Her articles on topics dealing with both foreign and domestic affairs are invariably widely quoted because of their insights. And next month, we'll present a panel of university presidents to discuss the role of the university in a changing America. UCLA's Chancellor Jean Block will be among our guests. Block has served as head of one of the of one of the highest, if not the highest ranked public university in the nation since 19, it's in 2007. Our returning moderator tonight is Larry Mack, the host of NPR station KPCC's flagship broadcast, Air Talk, since 1985. His career is a model of how to promote the kind of civil, intelligent, respectful dialogue and inquiry that this series strives for. 
He's been recognized and honored by his peers for his work as Journalist of the Year and also with their Mark Twain Prize. Larry, take it away. It's all yours. David, thank you so much. I appreciate those kind words. And it is truly an honor to be with you for another America to Crossroads, this series of very important conversations about where we are as a country now and where we're headed down the road. My thanks as well to Janice, to Zev, Mel. Thank you all for inviting me to be a part of this program this evening. I'll never forget being on the air with Politico White House correspondent Anita Kumar on January 6th, 2021. We were talking about the mundane process of congressional finalization of the electoral vote. We knew it was much more charged this year, but we were shocked to see the mob successfully storm the US Capitol as it unfolded while we were on the air talking live. Anita went into radio reporter mode and we provided live descriptions of what was unfolding. I've described many terrible events over the course of my 40 year career in news. Deadly earthquakes, riots, wildfires, mass shootings, and September 11th. But even so, I was shocked by the scene last January 6th as, as we all were. It was of course, deadly and forever changed the lives of those who survived the attack, but even the symbolism of a domestic attack on our center of government carries tremendous weight for those of us who watched that event. This evening, I want to hear what evolution our experts are seeing in terms of domestic extremism and violence, and ways that our law enforcement and intelligence apparatuses are responding to it. A reminder that you can ask questions that we'll take later this hour. You can ask those in the Q&A. And when you ask your question, please include your first name and your location along with your question. It gives a nice sense of place for the rest of us to know from where the question comes. With us this evening, Carol Lenig, Pulitzer Prize winning national investigative reporter with the Washington Post. She was a key journalist in the Post's recent investigation into the January 6th attack. She's also an on-air contributor to NBC News and MSNBC. And if a Pulitzer isn't sufficient, she's won three of the highly prestigious George Polk Awards for investigative reporting. Joanna Mendelson is the Anti-Defamation League's Associate Director of the Center on Extremism. She's an expert on domestic terrorism-related activity and has testified in numerous criminal cases. She's also trained more than 12,000 law enforcement officers, judges, and public officials across the country. And Imran Ahmed, the founding CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. He's an expert on the dynamics of social media and what goes wrong in those spaces. That includes not just extremism, but conspiracy theories, misinformation, and identity-based hate. He's regularly quoted and appears on many news reports, including this morning on my program, Air Talk. Thank you all very much for being with us. I appreciate it so much. Uh, I was struck by how the majority of those arrested in the Capitol attack apparently were not affiliated with an extremist group like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers. These were generally middle-class Americans, more or less functioning in the mainstream. The profiles of those arrested that we've read often detail mental health or financial challenges along the way, but these don't appear to be longtime radicals. And I'll begin with you, Carol. Who are the people who attacked the Capitol nearly a year ago? You know, I know this was going to, first off, I want to thank everybody involved in organizing this event and Larry, your work too, to bring this discussion to the fore. I can't think of a more important topic for us all to be tackling this week, this month, and in this coming new year. So thank you guys for your focus on it. Um, I'll tell you what I know from wonderful Post reporting and, and my news organization, The Washington Post. Many of the individuals involved were people who I think you can best describe as being disturbed, conspiracy theory, uh, vulnerable. People who who weren't who were leaning conservative in their viewpoints and had distrust of government and had been, in a sense, in essence, stoked 
over and over and over again for months and actually all of 2020 um, to believe that the government was out to get them, out to trick them, and that Donald Trump was their savior. I think that's something that binds all of them. And as you know from their testimony and their interviews with FBI agents, an overwhelming number of these individuals said that they came to the Capitol that day because the President of the United States said he needed them to. Uh, what's also really intriguing to me, and I think Joanna is going to be an amazing um, articulator of all the details of this, but what's amazing to me is, is how much and how long this stoking uh, went on. People were encouraged to believe that the governor of Michigan was shutting down the country intentionally to hurt uh, struggling people who were, were underemployed. People were stoked to believe online that um, election places were giving out ballots to people that didn't exist and to people that were dead so that people could double vote. There was a lot of distrust being sown, not just by, you know, domestic extremist groups, but foreign operators. So that's something. Another key element to remember about this group, one third of them had struggled financially. Forgive me, let me take that back. More than 40% of this group had struggled financially with a bankruptcy filing, a um, default on a major loan, um, struggles that included losing their jobs in the last year. The Post did a intensive research into the backgrounds of all of the people that were charged. So they had reason to feel uh, unmoored and uncomfortable. Again, they're, they were brought by the combustion of Donald Trump and various organizations in encouraging them to be his, his basically his paratroopers to help him save the country. Joanna, in what role did the um organized uh, extremist groups like Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, um, the, the QAnon forums, what, what, what por portion of this was theirs? So I can help put some numbers around some of the data that Carol brought uh, to the front. So to date, we have over 700 individuals who are arrested as part of some criminality on January 6th at the Capitol, some who are involved in the insurrection and others on, on the ground. Um, and so 20% were largely linked to anti-government extremist groups, like three percenters or Oath Keepers. These are militia entities that, uh, like in the case of three percenters have, uh, excuse me, in the case of Oath Keepers have been recruiting law enforcement uh, and military uh, in their ranks. And recently linked data reveals a lot of that uh, success. Um, we also had white supremacists like um, Groypers and American First, but also conspiracy theorists, those who, who had kind of imbibed the QAnon belief system and conspiracy around that. But I think what, what is most alarming is the fact that 80% of those who are at the Capitol, those who are involved in insurrection, did not embrace some codified extremist belief, but rather they, they kind of drank the Kool-Aid over months upon months of disinformation. And, and they believe this mythic storyline of a stolen election. Uh, many of them were die-hard Trump supporters. And, and ultimately, they saw the democratic system as being broken. Um, and so whether or not they took in um, the, the idea that the Dominion um, uh, system was broken or, or trashing votes, whether or not they believe that the recount in Maricopa County and in Arizona was actually a false narrative, no facts could actually help to prove what they, um, what, what they would challenge. Um, so a lot of it is kind of magical thinking. Um, a lot of it is, is this kind of delegitimate delegitimization of our democratic process and, and the, the inability to believe uh, how, how the system actually played out. And I think that is the, the, that is the biggest takeaway. From a psychological standpoint, Joanna, because I assume the ADL looks into this aspect of it as well, 
How much of this do you think are, for many of these individuals, Donald Trump represented a, a real savior of the country, someone who was going to turn their lives around, turn the country around and make things right from their point of view. And, and so the election and what they were being told about it was in a sense, robbing them of this opportunity to, to somehow have their lives turned around as a result of Trump being in power. So that psychological component is that there is this cabal at play, that there is this, uh, the globalists or whatever external power is manipulating the strings and basically um, making our entire democratic process not work uh, and making it fall flat. And so it's the demonization of the other, whether or not it's the liberals or kind of the, the perceived Antifa movement, uh, the Democrats, whatever power is at play, many of them looked at Donald Trump as their knight in shining armor, who is going to defend against all of these bad forces that were plaguing our system currently. Um, these are ordinary Americans who ultimately, if you believe that your system is being threatened, if you believe that the system doesn't work, that your right to vote and the power of your vote does not count, then the system is broken and that can drive individuals to some very, very dangerous lengths. And so these are ordinary Americans who decided that mob violence was an appropriate means to achieve their political object objectives. And I, I think at the end of the day, we're seeing this Overton window shift where it essentially the Overton window, the, the largest kind of concept is that there's parameters that define what is normal and what is acceptable in political and social discourse. And the ever shifting window signals an expanding mainstream acceptance of extreme beliefs and ideologies. And so Janice's email yesterday that identified 72% of Republicans and 83% of Trump voters believe that Trump bears just some responsibility or none at all, that violence is an acceptable way in order to push your views within the system, then that results in this entire new landscape of uh, a new crop of extremists who are not part of this codified, formalized uh, movements, but have, feel, have, have felt like they have been othered. Imran, let's talk about the ways in which people share and reinforce that message. What shift have we seen in the ways that people have shared these thoughts on social media uh, pre-January 6th to where we are a year later? Well, uh, first of all, let me just echo uh, Carol and Joanna by thanking you for organizing today and for, and for uh, moderating today. Um, I, I think, look, let's, I, I query the premise of the question for a second, only because I think it's really important to remember that January the 6th wasn't the beginning of a set of changes, nor was it the end of a set of changes. It's a midpoint. And the, 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 the broad social forces that have been evolving over time, the, the degradation of norms, what Joanna called the shifting of the Overton window, that people who are offline are terribly meek. We know online can be terribly mean. Uh, in fact, they can use violent rhetoric, they can use abuse, they can use trolling, which is designed to terrorize people, lawmakers, journalists, and others, we've seen the normalizing of misinformation as an almost legitimate tactic in politics, which is bananas. And you know, 2016 was also an election plagued by misinformation and hate promulgated by a mix of domestic and foreign actors. And this sort of eliding of you know, the, the, the nonsensification of American political discourse as freedom of speech. Um, the fact that the platforms on which much of this activity, the organization, the fundraising, the, the drip drip of misinformation that leads to people being chronically misinformed and thinking it's almost rational to storm the Capitol um, because they feel that the election genuinely is being stolen. These are longer term trends and the impunity with which this has all happened. There were no consequences for 2016. 
not least there were no consequences for the platforms. The platforms got away with it scot-free. And I think that is also the story of what's happened in the year since. That actually, I mean, everyone can talk about Facebook's had a lot of, you know, a, a lot of people saying that they've, they're bad people, they've done terrible things. They doubled their profits last year. And that's a pretty good outcome if you're a My social media company that cares about these things. Let me talk My about the groups specifically, though. And, and I know that you want me to talk about the groups. Well, just we had 100, what, 150,000 accounts, for example, that were uh, suspended after the attack on the Capitol building. So I, my assumption is that that has in some ways made it harder for people to communicate these thoughts. Or is it just driven it to other places? Well, I mean, there are some accounts like the most, if you are stupid enough to literally label your account, I love Nazis, your account may have been shut down. However, it's the smart ones who haven't, and they're the ones we need to be really scared of. So let me give you one specific example from January the 6th. On November the 5th, there was a Facebook group set up with 350,000 members, widely reported across every single channel, breathlessly by the newspapers. In 24 hours, it accrued 350,000 members. And kind of like the asteroid in this new Netflix movie, Don't Look Up, people were very, very keen to tell you how big the asteroid was. It's 350,000 people. But no one was saying, you know what, Facebook, you are literally responsible for this looming crisis and that there is violence being inculcated on your platform. When it was that a series of voices started shifting, the ADL amongst them, I mean, Jonathan Greenblatt was very brave on it and said, you know, this, there is violence being planned here. Then that forum, that group was shut down. That group was run by Amy Kramer and Kylie Jane Kramer. Their group was shut down, their accounts were not. They were the people who were in the Willard Intercontinental Hotel down the road from where I live in Washington, DC, in the room plotting with um, the organizers of January the 6th. And they organized the primary vehicle, Women for America First, that organized the main rally that comprised the precursor to the January the 6th event. So January the 6th, the main stage was Women for America First. It was the Kramers again. Their accounts weren't shut down. A year later, January the 5th, 2022, Women for America First is still up on Facebook and Instagram, despite having inculcated November the 14th, which everyone's forgotten, November the 14th, just where I live uh, in Washington, D.C., there were people rioting on the streets. A Black Lives Matter church was attacked. There was uh, a number of violent incidents running street battles with the police. Two months later, January the 6th, and the Capitol's on fire. A year later, still no action. The truth is, the action has been piecemeal and insufficient because the key actors, the key bad guys are still there. Imran, if I could also just add though, it's just, it's not only the tech companies, which is a huge component, but we're looking at it as this kind of a triumvirate, that it's it's the tech companies, but it's also mainstream political leaders, people who people trust. Um, it's media influencers. And so we just released a, a report today that actually looks at these three streams where information and disinformation is spread. It's given airtime, um, where, where individuals and, and those who have a potential to use a bully pulpit are not only tolerating, but flirting or outright promoting extremist beliefs and a range of uh, conspiracy theories. I mean, delusional and outlandish theories. Look at the fact that QAnon took off, right? This is a belief system that says that Donald Trump will be the hero that is going to push back against this child sex running ring that is operating in a non-existent basement in a pizza parlor, right? Like you, you, you say that and you break it down and yet, these are not individuals with aluminum foil around their head. They are individuals who truly believe this theory. And it has led to real world violence. It has led to murders right here in our backyard. Unfortunately, a QAnon a believer killed his family. Mental illness may play into some of these as well, but it has real world impact uh, in how they're operating. Uh, Sorry, go ahead, Emma. Joanna makes a really important point here, which is now that we have this enormous coterie of the of the chronically misinformed, they are being predicted. And it's a market, and you know, there's one thing uh, one thing uh, an economically motivated huckster loves, 
And that's chronically misinformed people because you can sell them anything. And so you see cable news channels pivoting their output to, to feed into these delusions, to try and create committed audiences out of them. Politicians seeking to play up to these chronically misinformed audiences, knowing that that's a vote in the bank for them. Carol, I, I want to come back to you to ask you about how it seems extremism is, is not as much um, talked about on the national stage now that we, what we're seeing is in local communities, threats against uh, school board members, uh, that COVID-19 has become a vehicle over mask mandates and reopening of schools and immunization. All of these things have become sort of the, the new place where this is playing out and elaborate, please. Well, there are a host of um, subjects on which the hucksters, as Imran appropriately calls them, um, are pushing buttons to try to encourage people basically to all believe one thing at the core, and that is to distrust their government, to distrust experts, to distrust science, to distrust reporters, to distrust facts that are demonstrably, palpably true. All of these um share those features, sadly. We have long gone past the days of Walter Cronkite where America shared um, common fact. And the problem, you know, I, I think it's it's really important to talk about the psychology of individuals who may be vulnerable to the conspiracy theories, to talk about the social media platforms that that help add fuel to this. The local politicians, let's, let's, let's be serious about those. National, local, state politicians who are all trumpeting the same, no pun intended, trumpeting the same exact line in the quest to get reelected. The, the, the problem is we really need to pull the lens back and see what is the reason for that. And the reason is there is a very large part of America that is distrustful because they haven't been served by their politicians. They have been in economically ravaged communities where they feel um, vulnerable slash um, endangered. Now, certainly a, a strand of um, nationalism and white supremacism flows through some of these communities. But a, another key one that we really need to think about is how, how pathetically they have been served as members of our citizenry. There's a reason they're angry. Um, and it is, it is not simply um, white supremacist views I, or nationalism. I, I think I think we need to keep in mind what Fiona Hill wrote in her very good book. Um, There's nothing here for you, uh, and and she compares coal country in in northern England with many of the communities where Trump supporters and red staters live. Their despondency. They may be the first generation that doesn't see their children do better than 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 themselves. And their, um, their sense of, of panic about that is part of the fuel of why Donald Trump's, you know, completely gossamer, vague promises of making America better. And this nostalgia to return to this place where you had a job and your wife made dinner every night. And, you know, this, this place where everything was settled and safe uh, and, and certainly where, you know, white males reign supreme. Um, this is why Donald Trump's big lie uh, continues to fester, metastasize, and succeed. And Carol, there certainly is a significant swath of, of, of people that are in the category you just described. But we're, of course, I think most of us familiar with people who live uh, you know, solidly upper middle class, suburban lives, who have access to capital, maybe small business owners, um, women, not just men, who hold with, with many of these views that we're talking about and feel that same sense of grievance and that the country is under existential threat from, as they put it, socialist uh, or Marxist Democrats. And, and so with that sort of you know, extreme view about an existential threat to the country, where do you go from here? 
Well, I'm a journalist, not an activist. And I can tell you, you're absolutely right about a segment of people who are well healed and also share these views. I rode home on a plane with one a few days ago. She reminded me so much of my mom. She wanted to talk about the facts behind COVID protocols. And we chatted for a while. She had just taken her grandchildren and her children on a holiday weekend um, as a treat for, for, you know, being away from each other for so long and somehow threaded the needle between Delta and Omicron. But as we got going and chatting and she asked me what I did for a living and I told her, um, I asked her, what do you think is the most important question that reporters should try to answer in 2022? And she said, oh, I I, I think ele- we need to focus on election integrity. Um, she was from Arizona where she, she believed strongly that thousands of dead people had voted illegally and and they've been abused by somebody who was alive. In other words, um, fraudulent double counted votes. Well, that's been discounted. I don't know how many different ways. A Republican led audit committee um, with questionable um, uh, experience. Thank you. um, Ultimately concluded it could find no evidence of that. None. And yet here is this very smart, again, affluent woman who is convinced, probably because of the platforms that Imran has been talking about so often, and the pundits that she's watching on television from different channels, she's convinced that this is true, even though it absolutely 100% has been discounted. Here's my journalist view. We have to do a better job, almost like a public service, of engaging individuals who are getting this baloney We have to find a way to connect with them, to engage them in our reporting process, and to make them basically a part of our work. Let them see our work, just like a math class. And and, and forgive me, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think one of the challenges with this is, though, that that we are so separated on our views in this country that the stakes are incredibly high for who's president. So if if you think the country is essentially going to be destroyed if Joe Biden is elected president or if Donald Trump is elected president, the stakes are so high that um, even if you don't have the messaging that somehow the election was stolen, you're going to look for any possible thing to cling on to, to tell you that your person should be should be the person leading and saving, uh, saving the country. And Joanna, how how do we how do we get from here, given that polarization and how people perceive the stakes? Well, and I think just to add on and and kind of building off of that question, I I think we have to look at the fact that January 6th, in many ways, was this engagement between extremists and non-extremists, right? This convergence. And we're seeing a continuation of this. What is that kind of overarching uh, kind of influence? It's the fringe influencing mainstream. It's the fringe and their ideals and ideology bleeding into the mainstream. And people like the the person you met on the plane are are taking that information in and it becomes something that is part of our general narrative. And so what we're seeing in time, you know, in in some ways is this toxic soup of ideologies. It's it's somewhat fragmented, uh, you know, this fragmented ideological tapestry. It's beliefs that are slightly turned and twisted to fit particular narratives, whether or not it's a libertarian bend or whether or not it's, you know, health nuts who are, you know, wanting to protect kids uh, who, who glom onto QAnon. It's this larger community of people who um, th- that's resulting in this larger kind of Um, again, toxic soup. But what I would say also is there's a a major shift to local politics and the mainstreaming of some of these um, really radical ideologies where uh, for the first time we're seeing community members come face to face with extremism and hate. We're seeing uh, PTA meetings being hijacked by extremists, school board meetings becoming hostile. We're seeing doctors um, and, and those who are working on COVID-19 uh, solutions being threatened, being targeted, doxxed, or having people you know, protest in front of their home. And really, this is kind of that existential crisis that you talked about, where, uh, where um, really democracy is being threatened, and it's 
it's beyond just the election process. It is in every single current event that we're faced with right now, whether or not it's refugee crisis or gun issues uh, or health, uh, you know, health pandemic and how we're addressing that as well. Yeah, well, and I would argue that we, we see it perhaps most clearly when it comes to COVID-19, because even with elections, even though there's not evidence of widespread voter fraud, it is still a comparatively opaque process to most of us. Um, the scale of an election, the way it's all counted, the different layers and protocols. With COVID-19, we actually have real world data on the effectiveness of vaccines and on boosters. We actually know of the people who are unvaccinated who become seriously ill and die. The data is, is far more clear and people actually in their own lives have anecdotal exposure to the negative effects of the coronavirus and to the negative outcomes that are far more common for people who are not vaccinated. And if if that is not convincing to people, when you, the data is 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 quite clear and easy to find, how do you do it with something that is comparatively opaque like elections? I, you look at I, I think that's kind of the narrative that we're seeing related to almost every every current event. Whatever the current event, it's almost the untold story. It's the the crisis actors. Uh, I'll never forget Sandy Hook. I mean, this is the most egregious, horrific uh, attack on an elementary school. With at the time, I had kids at, at the exact same age, and yet. We see individuals promoting this and saying that this is this didn't actually happen. Um, this is not a new phenomenon. After 9-11, we saw people identifying uh, what happened at the World Trade Center as, as either being, you know, the Mossad or dancing Israelis or, you know, that there was some other mysterious force. And we're seeing the same exact thing now at on, on January 6th, where um, anti-fascists were actually dressing up as Trump supporters, right? That it's it's somebody else's fault. And so no matter, I don't think it could be as transparent as COVID, or it could be something much more complex. But there, if there's a will, there's a way. If there's a, a political narrative, then that, you know, twisting the truth and repackaging the beliefs and spinning a completely different narrative in the same set of facts is going to happen time and time again. We have so many questions from members of our, our viewing audience. And please, with your question, please include your location and your first name. I appreciate it uh, very much. These are some that came in apparently before uh, I mentioned this to people. Uh, Debbie asks, isn't racial animus a huge factor in Trump supporters' views towards what's happening in America? A white majority America will be history and they're feeling that. Uh, who would like to respond to, to that question from Debbie? You know, I'll take a stab at this only because a good colleague, a uh, former colleague at the Post and a good friend wrote a wonderful article about it. Um, and Joanna and I talked a little bit about it a few days ago. Uh, Bart Gelman in The Atlantic wrote a piece talking about how January 6th was really just sort of a dress rehearsal practice for the real insurrection. And in that piece, he, he interviewed quite a few people who held these beliefs that don't have any um, basis, in fact, about the election being stolen in various places, Arizona, Pennsylvania, cockamamie ideas that even Attorney General Bill Barr at the time concluded um, had absolutely nothing to them, as a prosecutor would say. Uh, Barr also found that many of the individuals he was interviewing with these views hailed from regions where there was a lot of tension about whites, white males and whites becoming the minority in those communities. There was one individual in particular, a fire, fire department employee who insisted that over the course of his career, many, many times he'd lost the job because a minority got it instead. And um, so that feeling of, you know, replacement syndrome throughout the country is a, is a real, force for some of the Trump supporters and some of the extremism that you see in three percenters, Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, for sure. But also those folks who don't, who don't uh, believe they are members of that group, but hold that belief that they are threatened and um, 
Donald Trump's going to make sure that America's great again, uh, which is just code, dog whistle for uh, white majority again, whites in control. Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, today spoke uh, day before the anniversary, and uh, he said the Justice Department will prosecute those responsible for the insurrection at any level. Um, but uh, we have one of our viewers who, who wants to know what you think about what he said and the likelihood that uh, former President Trump or members of his, his, his former members of his administration might be prosecuted here. Uh, who'd like to respond on that? I, I'm, happy yeah. I'm happy okay. to. I'm happy to. I know Merrick Garland pretty well. Um, and he gave basically a criminal justice 101 speech today, which was, here's how it works, folks. We charge people at the small level. You don't see everything we're doing. There could be bigger charges down the road. He's essentially trying to say, there will be more to this and we will do everything in our power. It's the largest investigation in FBI history. Uh, and that is true. I don't think we can read a lot into Merrick Garland's speech in terms of um, trying to predict whether Donald Trump or some of his allies are going to be charged with incitement, with conspiracy, with uh, playing any role at all in this effort. Uh, I think they, he's promising a hard look at that. But let's all be clear. The FBI and the, some of the U.S. attorneys uh, in the District of Columbia presaged early on that they did not believe there could be charges of incitement on the part of the people that were, for example, on that stage with Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., uh, Eric Trump, Rudy Giuliani. Um, and so they, they told you right up front, they didn't think that that kind of case could be made. I'll add one more thing about um, the charges. What I'm looking for as a person who used to cover federal courts and who cares pretty deeply about uh, how our criminal justice system works and doesn't work is there was a conspiracy among a group of people and at least 20 people have been charged with conspiracy. Some of them appear to be cooperating with investigators and are not being, press, uh, not being sentenced. And that is a big tell. That tells me that they have information of value about who about what, about what they did. And that's what I'm waiting to see. That's the shoe I wanna see drop. I can also add that ADL is, is proud to join the landmark federal lawsuit um, uh, in, in, in coordination with the DC Attorney General um, on behalf of the District of Columbia against the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and uh, 30 additional individuals um, who are affiliated or associated with those organizations for their role in planning and executing uh, this act of domestic terrorism. So not only are we seeing it from that level, but also uh, from the, the civil side as well. Diana asks, uh, why are members of law enforcement and the military so susceptible to involvement in January 6th or extremism? I can take that because um, yeah. we've done, ADL has done a lot of work um, in uh, not only testifying on Capitol Hill, um, uh, Dr. Mark Pekavich has testified in, in regards to that. We're not hyperbolic in that this problem is rampant and, you know, all over the place, but, but a single individual involved in the military, single individual in law, involved in law enforcement is one too many, um, especially given the power and the position that they have. Um, it, there is a clear effort for extremist groups to recruit. Um, I, my specialty is looking at some of the most violent white supremacists called accelerationists. And as part of their membership application, for example, one of the things that they ask for would-be members is what type of military background do you have? Um, and if not, what other skills can you offer? Um, and so there is a real interest in recruiting from, uh, from those who have military uh, background for par paramilitary training, um, because many of these groups do 
desire to um, to crush the system. Some of them, like for the accelerationists, they believe that the system is injected with Jewish values, and whether or not it's liberalism or diversity or multiculturalism, and all of these uh, efforts are spiraling the system down. And so one must engage in an attack against that system. So people with backgrounds like law enforcement and military are, are kind of primed for that. Um, this year, Oath Keepers membership list was leaked to the public and ADL is currently looking through and identifying various members of law enforcement. Unfortunately, we found far too many who have been involved in the organization or have been at least listed on their membership list. So it is a problem that requires law enforcement and government, to, uh, uh, military to be much more transparent and really, really kind of no longer just talk and say it's, it's something that they want to dismiss from their ranks, but actually put steps forward to eliminate it. And Imran, I, I want to ask you along these lines, sort of where where hate expressed digitally sort of factors into this, because your organization, you know, monitors uh, essentially hate speech and and uh, online racist expressions. How does that interact with this kind of anti-government, this sort of um, effort to push back against change in the country? Well, I mean, we, we don't necessarily track when we don't sit there reading the internet. Uh, and that's a pretty thankless task, uh, a pretty unattractive task. Um, but what we look at is the architecture by which hate is proselytized and by which millions of people are persuaded that the world is a different way, that the, the lens through which they see the world has been recolored through the drip drip of misinformation in spaces which are designed to radicalize and that exist on platforms that we all use. And I think one of the things that sort of, there's a narrative thread that runs through, so CCDH, uh, the Center for Counter and Digital Hate, which I run, we've done an enormous amount of work in the past year and a half on anti-vaxxers. We were the ones who produced the report showing that 12 individuals produce 65% of the misinformation shares on social media platforms. Joe Biden cited that when he said that Facebook were killers. I mean, his conclusion was, if that is true, it is axiomatic that Facebook themselves are, are complicit and therefore killers themselves. And we've seen, we see there are certain psychological, so in, there is a psychology to conspiracism. In, in short, people are more likely to fall for conspiracy theories if they're feeling epistemic uncertainty. That is a sense that they just don't know what is going on and how on earth to get some facts or some certainty about it. And you can imagine in the past year where we've had a novel pathogen, coronavirus, going around the world that people have felt this great, I mean, I felt it, this great sense of what the hell's going on? Like, I just don't get it anymore. And a lot of people have felt, you know, people can feel that because they lost their job. They can feel that because they see their community changing. And if in that moment, the information that's fed to them in their moments of vulnerability, and that's what social media is really good at doing, it creates answering spaces where people express their vulnerabilities. What bad actors have become very proficient at doing is filling those moments with misinformation, with the lies, with, well, you know, the Jews are encouraging, you know, Soros is encouraging Muslim and black people to immigrate to America. They're the ones taking the job. Soros has lots and lots of, he's a big advocate of migration. That's why it's a Jewish plot. The Jews are plotting to actually replace the white man with the black man because they hate the white man because, you know, the white, white people are the only people that have ever been able to defeat the Jews. Now, that sounds bananas. It sounds like I just made it up. That specific theory is the great replacement theory. That led to the bloodshed boast in Christchurch of Muslims where dozens were gunned down by a man with an assault rifle, but also the Tree of Life massacre. And if people are fed misinformation, if you were told every day, if every day this was fed into you, and you know, you're a normal person, you don't read the news religiously, you don't have multiple sources, you get your news on Facebook like you do anywhere else, it's almost rational to conclude at the end of the year, yeah, Jewish people really are coming to this country a lot. Or there has been, there's been lots, of, I've seen lots and lots of stuff about elections, you know, funny stuff going on with elections. There was, wasn't there some funny accounts somewhere where they, they found a bunch of ballots, but it's because you've been seeing it on the periphery of your attention. 
And I think that's one of the things that we, you know, we, we haven't really come to grips with it, that a lot of people feel uncertain in an increasingly complex world. Well, and, and, and this, kind of, this kind of outrageous, but highly simplified kind of um, uh, guide to what's happening in the world, um, probably gives some sort of comfort, as as strange as that sounds, because it it explains for people these sorts of wild ideas, uh, the, the the things they're having a hard time, you know, getting their heads around in the world. So that's what's really interesting about conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories, theories are so there's a really strong correlation between epistemic uncertainty, that sense of what the hell is going on, believing conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories, though, have a weakness. They're not based on facts. They're based on a leap of faith. They're always based on a leap of faith, not a kernel of truth, but a lie, a lie at the center of it. And the problem with lies are, and, and, and a leap of faith is that it can never fill that desperate yearning for fact and certainty. And so people start looking for more and more and more to fill the gap. They're like junk food, like, you know, like my addiction to Pringles. Uh, once I've had one, I, I have to take the entire tube. And so people start rabbit holing, we call it, we look at externally. And you may have seen that in a member of your family. You may have seen that with one of your friends. They, they believed one, they started believing 10, 15, 20. So because that epistemic uncertainty is never sated by a conspiracy theory, they get further and further into the loop. And, you know, of course, we have these environments that literally with a click, you can get to the next conspiracy theory. The world fundamentally, the, the way that we've structured the way that we present information to people has changed so significantly. And I think this is crucial because another thing has come out in the last year that's really important is that Francis Haugen, the, the, the whistleblower who came forward, who's been all around the world giving evidence to Congress and other places, she showed internal documents that said that, that the systems are so badly designed that they literally lead people down the rabbit hole. So there's one particular study that was done internally to Facebook called Carol's Journey into QAnon. And it showed that within two days of someone liking um, Melania Trump and a couple of other Trump related accounts, they were driven through to QAnon content. And this is not just true on the political right in the US, it was true in the political left in the UK, where it led to the crisis of anti-Semitism infecting the left of the UK. It was true on, it's been true around the world in a number of different movements. Sorry, that was a bit long, but. No, no, but, no. I, but it, ex, it explains a lot. It doesn't necessarily get us closer to solving that problem, but it explains why people grab on to outrageous explanations to try and make, make sense of the world. Carol, were you just going to say something? I'm sorry. You know, it's, I was just thinking about how well you put that, Imran, and I was also thinking about the chicken and the egg. You know, one of the things that I wrote in and with Phil Rucker, my colleague uh, and partner in the last two books we wrote about Trump, was that his genius, his real genius, was that he saw a group of people or he saw a mass really of numbers in front of him, um, angry, upset, anxious. And he, he tapped into their anger and their fear and their anxiety. But he didn't just do that. His genius was that he amped up their anxiety and their fear and and their and their hatred um his his genius was being able of course not alone certainly with all of his allies and with different social media platforms to basically turn up the volume times 100 over the course as you say drip 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 of misinformation to make people even more nervous and anxious um, and to feed them information that he and his his allies, Bannon, Hannity, pick whichever one you'd like, um, the, the Kramers um, would argue was the answer to their problem. And none of those were based in fact. I think Carol, that was, go, no, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you mid-sentence. So go ahead and finish your point. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go, okay. Go, go. I was going to, I was going to, because you were talking about media people and I thought, you know, these texts, uh, Sean Hannity uh, and, and others at Fox News saying, you know, you've got to stop the president because, you know, he, this is terrible uh, going down this road. 
trying to get the inner circle, in, including uh, Meadows, to to convince the president to back off of this. Uh, you know, you need to fight against the steel, Carol. What you know? What do you make of this? Because that's certainly not stuff that Hannity was saying on his show that night. I would say that the what you reference is one of the two biggest takeaways um, that we've discovered in the months. Um, 12 months since the storming of the Capitol. One is that a host of people who were very, very close to Donald Trump, who were his number one uh, advisors on media, Fox News, let's be honest, uh, most of the anchors on Fox News are in regular contact or were in regular contact with Donald Trump. Sean Hannity spoke to him more than than any of his children ever did on a daily basis, had a bat phone to Donald Trump to give him advice about what to say that day on television and give him encouragement about something else he'd said at a news conference. They were back and forth reinforcing each other for um, Donald Trump's political gain. This group of people were all begging Donald Trump on January 6th, shortly after 1.45 p.m., to please do something to stop the attack on the Capitol. Uh, Laura Ingraham said, you know, this is destroying his legacy in a text to Meadows. You've got to do something. Donald Trump Jr., the president's son, said it's gotten out of hand. We've got to stop this. He's got to say something. Um uh, Sean Hannity, the same, please make him make a statement. So again, what's the point of these texts? What's important to your listeners and your audience here today? The important thing is, newsflash, Donald Trump's allies, who all now say that, that January 6th wasn't that big a deal, it wasn't that violent, the Trump supporters were very loving and caring and overwhelmingly peaceful, that's not how they felt the day of. And their honest reaction was a panic, panic that the Republican Party was going to take a hit, that the president was going to be harmed. We're almost out of time, but I, I do want to end by by um, looking to the future and the work that I know, Joanna, you and the ADL is is doing on this. You know, what are some things that would help us get ourselves out of this place in which we find ourselves as a country? I take a deep breath, right? Because there is a lot of work ahead. Um, you know, I think all of our feeds are and our screens are daily bombarded with this, you know, with this news, with the violent expression, with this kind of cacophony of, of disinformation and, and, and vitriol and, and the political divide is growing. Um, and so as we look at 2022, uh, a few things to kind of outline. Um, one, um, there's, there's concern about the 2022 midterm election campaign. And as they're beginning to kick off and, and kind of uh, ramp up and get into high gear, we have identified over 150 problematic political candidates who claim to be running for office this year. And this includes kind of hardcore white supremacists and anti-government extremists to others who are okay to affiliate uh, or at least promote conspiracies uh, and associate with other extremists. So we need to continue to speak out and push back and make sure that those candidates are not successful. Um, ADL has also promoted uh, uh, AD, uh, Protect Act. And this is basically, there, there's no magic bullet to, uh, to address the problems that we have um, that is plaguing our nation. And so basically this, uh, creates this larger uh, kind of all the different resources that we need, all of society, whether or not it's education, um, <clears throat> excuse me, work with tech companies, um, work with law enforcement, um, not allowing those in power to have, uh, you know, with law enforcement um, or, or military, because January 6th served as a warning until our nation takes a united and focused concerted effort to push back we, our democracy is certainly in peril. And, and so if I 
sorry, just to leave you. Just I, I need to close, but oh, yeah. yeah. Go for okay. It. Yeah. Joanna, uh, Carol, Imran, thank you all so much. Really appreciate your being with us and sharing your expertise in this very, very important topic. I mean, we're at a point clearly where um, we have some very, very difficult decisions and, and high vigilance that's required going forward. Thank you so much all for being with us. And I want to ask those of you viewing uh, who have appreciated multiple ones of these programs, America at a Crossroads, to please support these programs. These kinds of conversations with the guests with a level of expertise that we've heard this evening are the norm each week on these programs. So please visit the respective websites of Jews United for Democracy and Justice or Community Advocates, Inc. They share the money that comes in. They pool it to put on these programs. You can contribute on either one of their sites, but please support the programs if you find value in these programs each and every week. Now, next Wednesday, it's a look at the recent verdict in the civil lawsuit against organizers of the 2017 Charlottesville protest. Uh, lead counsel for the successful plaintiffs, Roberta Kaplan will be a panelist, and UC Irvine law professor Henry Weinstein will moderate. That's next Wednesday, January 12th, 5 o'clock Pacific, 8 o'clock Eastern. From all of us at America at a Crossroads, thank you for joining us. Have a very good evening.